0: Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Hey, Proof listeners, I want to tell you about a great podcast I recently discovered called Naked Lunch. It's hosted by Phil Rosenthal, creator of one of my favorite shows on Netflix, Somebody Feed Phil. Phil and his pal, renowned music journalist David Wilde, have conversations over lunch with some of the most interesting people they know. If you love great conversations with fascinating people... And if you love lunch, I know I do, this is the podcast for you. Follow and listen to Naked Lunch wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm trying to remember the first time I heard the phrase, you are what you eat. What does that even mean? I am what I eat. I, Kevin Pang, am an entire pint of Ben & Jerry's I inhaled last night on the couch? Like the best aphorisms, it packs a lot of truth and wisdom in those five pithy words. On the one hand, it gets at this idea that if you're eating well, you probably feel pretty good and you're defined as a quote-unquote healthy person. But on the other hand, if you haven't been able to eat well, you probably aren't feeling too well either. You're labeled as unhealthy. Well, it's the real world, and things are a bit more complicated than that. You see, we can't always control what we eat. Maybe it's where you live. Maybe it's where you don't live. Maybe your job doesn't give you enough time to cook at home. Look, it's convenient to say, just eat more vegetables and fewer potato chips. But it's not that easy. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, a story about what happens when who you are And what you eat, come to a head. I'm Kevin Pang. Stick around. Ever thought about opening your own fine dining restaurant? Or maybe you've dreamed of having your own hometown bakery full of cakes and other treats... As someone who's finishing up business school, I love daydreaming about these possibilities. No matter where you are in your culinary career, Augusta Escafier's School of Culinary Arts wants to help turn your daydreams into realities. Escafier helps prepare students for life changing food careers. To find out more, visit Escafier.edu. That's E S C O F F I E R.edu. Gabrielle Lawrence brings us today's story.
1: In 2017, I decided to travel from Southern California to Arkansas for graduate school. Both sides of my family called the South home before they migrated to LA about 60 years ago, so I had some roots there. I explored the wide open space and gardened. I practiced archival work and family study. I became exposed to ancestral veneration, which is the process of honoring deceased loved ones who are still with us in spirit. Sometimes that includes an altar space. Even though I struggled with the culture shock of living in the South, I began to feel more connected to my own history. But at a certain point, I stopped feeling healthy. I just remember feeling so unhappy with everything I ate, tired all the time. My skin acted out. I didn't sleep well. And on top of my mental health, which already demands most of my energy, my symptoms felt worse after eating. When I felt worse, I relied on fast food and pre-prepared food more. Sometimes, after finishing my food, I would feel a fullness in my belly, but nothing else. Just a film of oil on my tongue. I became disgusted at times by the craving for overly processed products. I had no clue where the food was coming from, how long it traveled, or even how it was being made. I just knew it made me feel bad, and it drained my wallet. I was aware, on some level, that the corporations behind the scenes actively work to harm people like me. They use stereotypes and targeted advertising to appeal to Black consumers, especially Black youth at disproportionate rates. And they are, in some communities, the only close food options. But most of the time it felt like I was too exhausted to care, until even the convenience got old. My discomfort brought me into a new awareness. When I was five years old, my beloved paternal grandmother passed away. It was the first of many early experiences with death and grief. It was the sugar, the diet sodas, that fake stuff, I remember my mother saying. That's what killed her. It was cancer, actually. But she captured the general sentiment. Later on with other family members, it was high cholesterol, diabetes, injury on the job, addiction, untreated mental health, or an incredible amount of stress over long periods of time. But food always played a big role in how we talked about the weight of those intersecting struggles as Black people in America. Food was central to gathering, and also escape. Food was full of comfort, but also blame. Seeing so many people struggle to keep their bodies well early on in life felt normal for a really long time. But at this point in my life, it made me scared and anxious. The nudge from my ancestors to change my diet became a push. I can't outrun systemic health disparities, but I can learn to feel my body. I can develop an intimate understanding of my needs so that I can advocate for myself. I had to learn to keep my body feeling as good as possible if I was going to make it through COVID and the days beyond. Really, if I was going to make it through life. After moving from Arkansas to Florida for a job in 2020, I committed to stop eating meat. Plants were there in the memories that made up my plate, but I had to look for them, intentionally. I would call my family to ask for help recreating my favorite dishes. Even though they didn't eat meatless diets, they always knew someone who did. One time I had a craving for a cabbage dish that wouldn't go away. The dish typically includes cabbage, carrots, and onions. I've seen versions with bell peppers and celery. There's also chicken stock, sausage, and maybe bacon. It can be boiled or fried, and seasoning is very important. It's warm and filling. I often crave its delicate crunch. I called my family upset because I couldn't capture the hearty flavors of the meat with only vegetables or seasonings. They recalled a friend of a friend using liquid smoke. They also suggested I learn to make homemade veggie stock. Those conversations remind me that plant-focused dishes were already part of my cultural food story, save a turkey leg here and there. Another thing that helped me cut meat out of my diet was gardening. My living grandmother, the one on my mom's side, has a collard green bush she's been growing for years in her backyard in Los Angeles. It's taller than my head and longer than my arm span. It's inspiring. When I started growing tomatoes, squash, beans, okra, and peppers that spring, using them to feed myself was unlike any other connection I had experienced before. Gardening allowed me to experience food ownership in small ways. It allowed me to develop an embodied connection to my food through the work and through my senses. Watching seeds grow into sprouts and full-grown plants helped me respect where my food came from. It helped me really taste my food. I realized throughout all of this that I come from farmers. I come from a lineage of people who have a connection to the land. My body already knows what it needs. It wasn't about the quantity of what I was growing. And you don't have to have a full garden plot to experience food ownership. Food ownership is about building relationships with others in our food system. It's about local farmers, distributors, grocers, and consumers communicating with one another to create holistic and supportive food access. A year later, at the start of 2021, I got the opportunity to move back to California. I packed my car to the brim and drove clear across the country from Florida to L.A. The first thing I grew after moving home was a clipping from my grandmother's massive collard green bush. She broke off a stem for me while we were in the kitchen cooking for a holiday dinner. Just stick it in the ground and keep it watered, she said matter-of-factly. It'll grow. I do it all the time. I stuck it in a wine glass full of water for safekeeping until I could transfer it to dirt. Shortly after planting, I saw pockets of little green leaves growing around the stem. I felt such pride and joy, and then the worms came. My sprouting leaves were now pale, wilting, and full of holes. I struggled with the worms for months. My return to the city wasn't as warm or joyous as I wanted it to be. Many of my family members were undergoing health procedures or aging rapidly. I quit a job in software development because it made me terribly unhappy. I made it to the final round of at least five job interviews, only to never get picked. I had to build out my business as a freelance writer and editor to survive, but I had no clue how to be an entrepreneur. I was isolated, fumbling, and grieving. The growth from my grandmother's collard green clipping seemed to halt completely, and I wasn't sure if it would survive. My grandmother was also confused. She didn't understand why after nearly a year it was still a lone and sickly stem. In distance and disconnection, our memory exaggerates. Like many people who have been exposed to LA via pop culture, I had forgotten that a good portion of the city is actually food insecure. That is, they don't have reliable access to affordable nutritious food. I guess that comes as a shock to people because it's L.A., but 38 million people are food insecure in the U.S., according to the USDA. Underneath the aesthetic pleasantries, there are glaring food insecurities. When I first moved to my neighborhood in L.A., which is sandwiched between the edge of Inglewood and other parts of South Los Angeles, I noticed it was easier to rely on foods that were pre-prepared for me. With more in my budget and the willingness to drive further, I could go to restaurants that served processed vegan food or vegan food trying to be meat. But when I was overworked, exhausted from all that life was throwing at me and low on funds, fast food was the most accessible. I was eating more cheese than is good for my body, more fried foods and overall lots of carbs. Turns out, You can be a vegetarian but only focus on not eating meat instead of the nutrients you're putting into your body. Not everyone can spend time making their own food, especially people living at the intersections of highly impacted social identities. For example, people living with disabilities, sole providers, people without any in-home support, without transportation, or low-income households. But just because people have to rely on pre-prepared food from time to time, it doesn't negate the necessity for healthy and affordable options. Now more than ever, I was conscious of the need for supportive and holistic food access. So focusing in on a whole plant-based vegetarian diet became very important. In LA, I'm close to a commercial area, but in order to get groceries in my neighborhood, you have to store hop. To exist in this food system, I would get most of my produce from one store, half of my dry goods from another, my dietary-sensitive foods at another store on the other side of town, and it goes on and on. I like Trader Joe's because it's cost-effective and convenient. I can get everything I need produce-wise, a few processed luxuries or a houseplant, and keep it within my budget. I had gotten very comfortable relying on them. But the closest Trader Joe's to me requires a 40- to 50-minute round-trip commute, even with the privilege of having a car. Further inland, the struggle can be more laborious. As a plant-strong eater, I didn't feel like I was in relationship with the food system here. It was almost like we weren't speaking the same language. Thankfully, L.A. is a black vegan heaven. I knew I could find good food. Baba's Vegan Café, about 10 minutes away, captures the vibrance of Afro-diasporic cuisine. Each dish is distinct and packed with flavor. Stuff I Eat, also 10 minutes away, offers vegan soul food and Tex-Mex classics. In 15 minutes, I can get to Simply Wholesome, which is a health food store and restaurant great for grabbing specific supplements or to Lamert Park, an Afrocentric hub of Los Angeles where you can find vegan food pop-ups on any given day. Hot and Cool, an all-vegan coffee shop in the park, has a vegan breakfast bowl to die for. It's got vegan Italian sausage, garbanzo beans, and potato scramble, sautéed onions and peppers, salsa, special sauce, and mixed greens. It tastes like a home comfort dish. When I came across Olympia Osset and her organic grocery market in South LA, it felt like a big hug. Supermarket LA is a Black-owned, woman-owned grocer based in South LA, and an answered prayer. They're dedicated to making fresh and healthy food accessible. Their produce is affordable and 100% organic. They also have a nonprofit arm, Super Seed, which organizes health and wellness programming and community events.
2: We have a few different programs that are designed to help people with transitioning to healthier lifestyle. So whether that's giving them kitchen equipment, whether that's providing free wellness classes here, cooking classes, yoga classes, et cetera. We put on um, Superfest, which was South Central's first vegan festival, and it was all black and brown vegan vendors. All the food was free or subsidized. We had free wellness classes going all day. We had speakers like Tabitha Brown there, et cetera.
1: Supermarket started with small pop-ups in Lamert Park using a borrowed table each week. Olympia told me her motivation for establishing a place like Supermarket.
2: At the time I was transitioning to Raw Vegan, I was living in a part of town where it was really hard to get fresh food. So I would be on the bus like two hours every time I needed to go get groceries. And then I had trouble affording it. Once I got there, my friends were having similar issues. And so it was kind of just the perfect storm of just really, you know, needing access.
1: Olympia's journey felt close to my own. Learning about her motivation was like a missing puzzle piece. Olympia also told me about the losses that set Supermarket in Motion. This opened my heart space in a very special way. It illuminated a through line of the resolve and cooperation behind Black women's legacies in food.
2: I hadn't experienced a lot of death in my life. And then in one year I lost like three or four people to preventable disease, friends, moms, like different people. And it's just like, literally like, they're not able to be here for their grandkids now. And like, it was literally in that moment that I was like, oh, like if I don't do something, this is gonna be me at my friends' funerals when we turn 50 and I'm gonna continue to lose people.
1: During my sophomore year in high school, we lost two matriarchs in the same week. There were a lot of funerals, surgeries, doctor visits, and general pain around me growing up. Some due to reasons that could have been prevented with better healthcare and education. Some due to systemic inequities that disproportionately predispose Black people to diseases. Remembering how plant-strong our special family meals were made me want to reach back. It made me want to learn how to sustain myself in this environment. What Olympia said next struck another chord.
2: I say humans are resources, and the Black community is being robbed in many ways of its human resources. Here today in America... The crazy thing about how this plays out is that people are passing away earlier from preventable disease. So what does that mean? It means that they're not able to pass wisdom on to their children and their grandchildren because they're here for a shorter time. Any um, physical resources that they have amassed, material resources, they're not able to leave it to their children because a lot of times at the end of the life, they spend the money on the medical bills. So, it's literally robbery, and it literally plays a huge role in further destabilizing the Black community because we've already been through so much. And then now the glue, the people that were holding it together and keeping it stable, which a lot of times those are the women, those people are leaving the planet at 50, 60 years old.
1: How does this make me feel? I try to sit at my ancestral altar in the mornings with a cup of tea. I light my candles and keep the blinds closed. It's quiet. Interior. Still. Like standing over your tomato plant and rubbing the fuzzy leaves between your fingers. Still. Growing up in church, we called this reverence. Deep respect and admiration. I think of reverence as something marked by few words. Not much needs to be said where understanding is felt. I turned 26 this year. I realized I could blink and be 30. So a large part of what I can do to subvert the impact of power structures in my family line is to cultivate more awareness of my health, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Creating community around those habits has proved to be just as important. And food touches all of that easily. Olympia built Supermarket from a deeply intimate understanding of the needs of her community. In the same vein, I needed to investigate the context underlining how we got to where we are.
0: When we return, Gabrielle digs into the archives of history. Eating great food is one thing. The prep and clean up afterwards is, well, something else. That's where Kohler comes in. When prepping for recipes, you can tell the voice controlled faucets to dispense measured amounts of water. Kohler's faucets also feature a sweep spray to quickly get any gunk off of your dishes. Even if your hands are messy, you can wave on and off the touchless faucets. That way, you can clean with ease. Visit Kohler.com to learn more. Hey, Proof listeners, Kevin Pang here. I've got a secret to share. Mangoes are my all-time favorite fruit. I myself am Team Sliced Mango. My six-year-old, well, he's Team Hedgehog. He loves his mangoes cross-hatched and turned inside out. You know what I'm talking about. Our family loves mangoes because they're naturally sweet, tangy, and versatile. Eat them on their own, make mango lassi popsicles, dust it with chili powder, and you can even make savory dishes like mango curry chicken wings. Some recipes call for using unripe and half ripe mangoes. Lucky for me, these amazing superfruits are available year round. In fact, I'm gonna walk out of this recording booth, head to the market, and buy a dozen mangoes right now. See you later. Oh, 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 one more thing. Be sure to visit mango.org/proof for tantalizing recipes and to learn more about the amazing mango. And now, back to our story.
1: When I tell black people I'm a plant-based vegetarian, I expect a Huh? or an exaggerated facial expression of confusion that always makes me laugh. But I'm often met with surprise. People ask me why, almost immediately, and my short answer is, it makes me feel better. Many people respond by expressing their devotion to meat, as in, oh no, I could never. It's definitely not unheard of for Black people to be vegans or vegetarians, but I still feel like an oddball in my personal life. Plus, having actually heard people say, I don't eat vegetables, or, I don't like the taste of real fruit, I run into it enough to see an underlying narrative. That is, it's unusual for Black people to only eat vegetables. With vegetables as a stand-in for anything else that evokes healthy stuff, as advertised often through whiteness. The idea that our cultural foods are unhealthy has deeper roots, especially when you consider that many of those traditions are rooted in Southern cuisine, which is often portrayed as unhealthy, without any regard to the food systems that inform them. This is slowly changing, but the structures behind the narrative still interest me. I asked Olympia what she thought and how that impacts LA.
2: In our communities, there are literally like liquor stores and fast food places everywhere more so than there are grocery stores and then we go in those grocery stores the quality of the produce that's there it's like spoiled you know like if you go to West LA they have twice the grocery stores per person as here but this area spends more money in total on groceries than that area spends you know And so there's clear discrimination and injustice going on here. And it's just ridiculous to think that out of 1.3 million people, none of these people eat vegetables. And this is something that we allow, these are narratives that we play in our mind and allow ourselves to believe. And it's just not true. Sometimes when we have the conversation around food in the community, you know, we kind of forget that the situation we're in is in large part due to us moving to the cities you know what I mean? And kind of like working so hard, working so many hours, um, migrating over to like more of a fast food diet, etc., and losing touch with um, the food ways that, you know, we had previously.
1: Olympia's comment about moving to urban areas is an important element of Black urban history. The Great Migration marks a time of mass exodus from the American South to large urban cities in the North, Midwest, and the West. This migration occurred over a period of 50 plus years during an era of massive social change, war, and industrialization. People were leaving the South to get out of sharecropping, get better jobs, have access to housing and more opportunity, and hopefully escape the severe racial oppression of Jim Crow and segregation. Altogether, an estimated 6 million people made the move, marking a massive shift in land and place efforts toward racial progress, and the creation of urban culture. My family made the move during the second wave of the Great Migration in the early 50s and 60s. Most of my elders say they moved for a better life, to get away from farming as a means of survival, for education and social mobility. Connections with California were already being formed because several young men, often older brothers, were stationed in San Diego as Navy men. Though L.A. seemed less overtly oppressive than the Jim Crow South, the grip of structural inequities were still felt in Black urban communities. Paying attention to the Great Migrations helped me see the full picture, that there were traditions being left behind and a desire to fit into an entirely different context. And even though the urban context looked different than the rural context, the expendability of Black life in America was constant in both. Someone who studies this and understands this history intimately is Tracy McCorder. She's an author, a public health nutritionist, and she leads an organization called 10 Million Black Vegan Women, which helps Black women on their paths towards veganism. When we sat down to talk, she recounted her own family's struggle to maintain their plant-strong diet post-migration about 50 years ago. Tracy's family migrated from South Carolina, and she was born in Washington, D.C., After the move, however, Tracy's mother found herself struggling with a sugar addiction. She blamed it on the change in landscape and limited access to healthy food options in her area. When Tracy left her plant-based home for college several years later, she also struggled with food, eating a cheeseburger every day. That all changed after Tracy attended a lecture at Amherst College by comedian and activist Dick Gregory in 1986.
3: My sophomore year at Amherst College, our Black Student Union brought Dick Gregory to campus to talk about the state of Black America, political, economic, social state. Instead, he talks about the plate of Black America. This is 1986. And he talks about why Black folks are eating the way that we eat and the context in which we eat the way we eat, that it is not personal choice, right?
1: It's by design. Understanding the design behind our eating patterns stunned her into further study. After coming back from a trip to Nairobi, Tracy immersed herself in the vegan community in Washington, D.C. The cuisine in D.C. represented the breadth of the African diaspora.
3: This is 1987. They're bringing in people from all over the country to do talks, to do cooking classes. They're holding court, talking about the politics of the day. We were learning where to shop, how to make it tasty, how to do soul food, how to do raw food. That's how I learned to be vegan. And many of them had become vegan because of their own experience, spiritually or in the Black liberation movement.
1: Black power movements erupted across the world from the 60s through the 80s. Many of the people Tracy was learning from had lived through a truly iconic period of time where Black people were fed up with white supremacy and fighting back in whatever way they knew how, through art, music, protest, literature, and food.
3: So I enter veganism, this is my experience, and I'm assuming that this is everyone's experience, right? And I later find out that this is not the case for Black folks all over the world.
1: As she noted, hers is not the experience of Black America at large. While Tracy was being introduced to Black veganism, other enclaves of Black America were experiencing something different. We
3: move to other parts of the country and we take these agrarian foodways with us. This is before the 1950s when the American food system becomes industrialized. And for us, Folks who are primarily low income, it's what is available to us based on what we grow and what we find is available in the cities that we move into. The change in our diet doesn't come until after King is assassinated.
1: In Supersizing Urban America, how inner cities got fast food with government help. Author Chin Zhou explains how fast-food companies were expanding into urban areas as early as 1964. They focused in on Black American communities between the late 60s and 70s during the Civil Rights Movement, as the struggle for economic development accelerated. Unemployment rates were higher for Black people. The percentages of businesses owned by Black people was egregiously low. People were protesting anti-Black violence, and the blatant economic discrimination in Black communities caused significant unrest. During 1965 to 1968, there were almost 300 riots at the heart of Black American communities in response to these multi-layered injustices. To quell the demand for better economic conditions in Black communities, the federal government urged the Department of Commerce and the Small Business Administration or the SBA, to provide Equal Opportunity Loans, EOLs. Fast food companies were looking for ways to hire franchisees in, quote, urban neighborhoods, specifically Black and brown neighborhoods. In tandem, most of the SBA's job training and entrepreneurship programs for Black businesses involved fast food franchises. And so these loans were a perfect way fast food companies could urge minority franchisees to underwrite their expansion. The SBA distributed about $25 million in EOLs within a decade. According to Joe, major fast food chains like McDonald's discovered how profitable their urban franchise locations could be from this EOL arrangement. It was supposed to be a leg up for creating a new economic life. But instead, the EOLs had an adverse effect.
2: get dressed scrambled eggs and sausage and
1: The advertising industry followed suit using the same ploy of representation as fast food companies. Black people were more likely to purchase products in which they were visible. So the 3% of Black models and actresses in advertising during the mid-60s jumped to 12% by the end of the 70s. Agencies were exploiting the fact that Black Americans wanted to see themselves represented. You can still find these older McDonald's, Jack in the Box, and Burger King commercials, or even print ads, online. And this is still prevalent today. For example, in Black musicians like... Saweetie, Travis Scott, and Megan Thee Stallion's recent endorsements at major fast food chains like McDonald's and Popeye's. By the 1980s and 90s, Black Americans in urban centers were essential to fast food's bottom line. Here's Tracy again.
3: Dietary surveys show that before the proliferation of fast food franchises, In the late 1960s and 70s, African-Americans in cities were twice as likely to meet the dietary recommendations for fruit, vegetables, and fiber than the population overall. What happens is by 1996, 20 years later, 20, 25 years later, the exact opposite is true. Because of the targeting of fast food in urban centers where African-Americans predominate, It completely changed the way that we eat. So we then became the least likely to eat plant-based foods.
1: That's a lot to sit with, but hearing Tracy break it down helped me claim my plant-strong food culture. It also removed some of the blame and shame of having to put so much effort into staying well and having to stay strong. Black Americans have been steadily working to disrupt these narratives and overcome the challenges of this system. Among the patterns of resistance I came across in my research, cultural knowledge transfer and ancestral knowledges showed up repeatedly. This is just further confirmation that we have always been plant-strong and health-focused people. That we already have what we need. In some cases, that means asking our elders how they took care of themselves before modernization and industrialization, which plants they turned into medicines and home remedies, why they ate seasonally, and what they grew. It means directly learning from people who have maintained the traditions that came from closer land relationships. In addition to our intuition, the history of Black plant-based communities intersects with our community efforts. We see this in Olympia's work creating sustainable community conversations around food while providing affordable access, or through her nonprofit, Superseed, which helps community members with the transition into plant based and vegan lifestyles. We also see this in the history of the Seventh day Adventist tradition, the Nation of Islam, and others in the Black Liberation Movement. These communities adopted plant-based lifestyles for political, social, religious, and spiritual reasons. And we can continue to lean into modern-day political efforts aimed at reframing our food story. This includes supporting Black farmers who make up only 1.4% of roughly 3 million farmers in the U.S. Incorporating more plant-based habits into my lifestyle has brought up a lot of feelings. Even though I'm about two years in, I still get frustrated. It felt natural as an inclination, but awkward to fully embrace. But that points to years of systemic oppression, not choice. Plant-based food is our culture. It's easier to get connected to the knowledge we already have when we know where it comes from. That includes focusing on whole foods rather than processed foods. This is why Olympia stresses growing food wherever and however we
2: can. You can go cilantro, you can go green onions, et cetera, in a windowsill. And this is going to give you a connection to earth and to your food source. And it gives you control over your food source. And there's something spiritual that happens when you grow something and then you eat it. It's not the same as it just being chugged and you know, slogged all around the country, et cetera. You don't know where it's been. Like anybody that's ever grown their own tomato and are getting tomato or something like that and eat it, it tastes different. You can taste the love in it. You know, you can taste the energy in it. And it's like, you literally pick it and then put it in your mouth. So it has a lot of that energy. It doesn't start to lose life force. Anytime you're consuming something that you don't have the ability to create, you're in a position to be controlled. So food sovereignty is very important. No matter where you are, you can grow something.
1: When I think about what food really means to me, I think of the family matriarchs. There is nothing in this world that compares to the comfort of the kitchen during a family gathering. The way it smells, the sound of crumbling tinfoil, their lace-trimmed aprons and bedazzled wine glasses, getting yelled at for stealing a piece of food before it's time to eat, learning how to gossip and chop. Before returning to L.A., I would have remembered those flavors as meat-centric. Now, I can remember tomatoes growing in the backyard. I remember everyone's collard green plant. We had okra on the table, string beans, a highly decorated salad, assorted fruit, red beans and rice, corn, corn, Cabbage, which I love, and I can never forget the yams. I can recall the faint taste of celery and everything. A spot opened up eventually at the community garden closest to me in L.A. It was a vacant lot turned garden through the Los Angeles Neighborhood Land Trust, This was made possible through the activism of black and brown communities across the nation for food equity and ownership. I'm not sure how I'll approach this plot yet. I could try something new or keep it simple. I could keep my big vegetables at the community space and grow small herbs close to my home. I'm not sure. When I came home from weeding my bed at the garden the other day, I noticed a completely new sprout on the little collard green stem that could. I was shocked it survived, let alone that it was growing real legs. When I first got back to LA, I was so overwhelmed. I tried to play it off because I just wanted to leave the past in the past. This was a whole new chapter, a fresh opportunity in a big and promising city. I just want it to sprout and take off. But if nourishment is how we survive, and I live in a place where that survival is threatened, I have to be aware. I have to test the soil. It's not a question of whether or not I still have the ability to nourish my body well, or even if there's enough fresh food to sustain us. It is a question of awareness and connection. Being aware of how my body feels takes time. Staying aware of and connected to my history takes work. Knowing where to tap in when the design of this food system starts to take its toll takes research and participation. Knowing who to support means allowing myself to be supported by the community. It'll take time to understand what it means to feel connected here. Thankfully, I do have the blueprint, and it'll grow eventually. It always does.
0: Thanks to Gabrielle Lawrence for bringing us today's story. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and a podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm
1: executive producer, Caitlin Kelleher. I'm supervising producer, Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Alex
3: Curran-Cartarelli, and I'm also an associate producer.
0: I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator
2: and the founding host and producer.
0: Scoring, sound design, and mixing by... Matt Poynton, Chester Gwazda, and Anya Gjeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds Composer Theme Music, additional music by Kyle Forster and Jordan Pearson.
3: Ken Margolis
0: is our director of post-production and our director of production is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Special thanks to Simon Long, Angela Hollowell, Karen Washington, the Lawrence family, Tracy McWhorter, Olympia Osset, and Hot and Cool Café, who spoke to Gabrielle for this story. Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen, and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors Kohler, the National Mango Board, Augusta Scoffier School of Culinary Arts, Fresh Pressed Olive Oil, and the Naked Lunch Podcast. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.